0: Lord willing, we might possibly get through this entire chapter tonight. A lot of notes to go through and things to discuss, but a lot of ground has already been set as the the way in which Genesis is written, it all leads to these final moments as we kind of squeeze into the nation of Israel before they take off to, to Egypt. Genesis 44, the title of this outline is, God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Use the words of Judah that we'll find eventually here in our text. Let's just read the first five verses to get started with. It says, And he commanded the steward of his house, Joseph, he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and they their asses. And when they were gone out of the city, and not yet far off, Joseph said unto his steward, Up, follow after the men. And when thou dost overtake them, say unto them, Wherefore have ye rewarded evil for good? Is not this, uh, is, is not this it in which my Lord drinketh? And whereby indeed he divineth, ye have done evil in so doing another trial put forth for joseph's brethren to endure it's a very interesting situation depending on how you want to what perspective you want to look at it if you want to think of it as one of joseph's brethren it's got to be bewildering that earlier they had a meal in which they were seated in chronological order and i know it's been a few weeks so we're going to try and revisit some of this And all of these things that took place at the meal, they they ate and they drank with Joseph, not knowing it was Joseph. And they had good fellowship with this Egyptian Lord, as they referred to him when they talked about it with Jacob. And then as they depart, they seemingly are departing with good tidings. They've been returned their money, and they've also now got this cup. This time, for his part, he once again, Joseph's part, he once again spoils his youngest brother. This is where the silver cup goes. And he spoils him more than the rest, just like he did at that meal. Each had their grain money restored unto them, but Benjamin was sent with Joseph's own silver cup. Not just a cup from the table they dined at, not just a cup that wasn't used, not just a dirty cup that didn't even make it to the meal, not a servant's cup, not just an Egyptian-made cup, But Joseph's own cup that, according to Egyptian heritage, would have been the cup of divination. They would have believed that this cup was what made it possible for Joseph to divine or to see the prophetic visions in which led to the position that he's in. The steward was to load the bags with these items and was then dispatched to pursue them with the following message. Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? If you were just in Florida last week, you know that this is in, this phrase is in more places in the Bible than just Genesis 44. Which is very similar to how Joseph says this do and live. We now have another verse that's very powerful and very well positioned in the New Testament. And it's almost mind-blowing to see all of this being spoken in Genesis, the book of beginnings. Wherefore have you rewarded evil for good? Consider what Brother Simon Peter wrote in First Peter chapter three, verses eight through seventeen. He says, "Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrariwise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing." For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek, let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. And be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. And this might be the most important part of the whole thing, the very reason we aren't to return or reward evil for good. Having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well doing than for evildoing. Between these two uh, very familiar verses is the call to godly action and the call to a godly attitude. Very heavy burdens. Very heavy burdens. None can bear them alone. This is one of the reasons Christ says, you can do nothing apart from me there in John. Because what we've been called to, no man can do alone. What we've been called to do as followers of Christ, we've never been meant to do that alone. That attitude is to be present whether we are working in the mission that we are called to or other worldly endeavors as Christianity is not a hat that we get to put on and take off. It is at all times. How significant is this cup? And I talked to some of the men last Sunday that this was something I was really wrestling with. How significant is this cup? Because it's, it's typical of the Bible when it is very specific. A certain man, a certain cup. But here is very, very specific as to what cup. What the Egyptians would have thought this cup to be. What it was likely perceived as Jacob's son's this cup to be and what it's referred to as Joseph's own cup. Why this cup? What's so significant about it? Much like how Joseph was sold for silver, and so was Jesus, we have some typology here pointing to the coming Messiah and what his purpose is or was. In Genesis 38, or 37, verse 28, and this is just review, we read, Then there passed by Midianites, uh, Midian, Midianite merchantmen, of the doctor Seuss tongue twister. And they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for twenty pieces of silver. And they brought Joseph into Egypt. And its counterpart, Matthew twenty six, verses fourteen through sixteen. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver and from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Uh, it won't be part of this lesson, but if you go into some of the law that is laid out through, through Moses by the Lord, you'll see the significance of the difference in the pricing here. It wasn't inflation. Uh, there's actually a purpose to that typology. But consider this cup. It's Joseph's cup. The cup by which he likely was referring to divining from, according to Egyptian mythology. And according to the words Joseph put in the servant's mouth, it was the cup that he was to drink, whereby indeed he divineth, is how it was phrased in the text. Without getting too caught up in the Egyptian tradition, we can simply acknowledge that this is Joseph's purpose in Egypt. Now, I, I, I don't have any research available to say that other pharaohs or other lords of Egypt drank from cups and divined, but we do know in the next book, Exodus, There are going to be Janus and Jambres and wizards and magicians at the Pharaoh's disposal. So those likely men who claim to drink from cups and divine. But what we do know is that this whole divining thing is the purpose for which Joseph has been used. He's interpreted dreams. And we know from his own lips he's given God the glory for it. That God has given explanation. If you remember with the one with Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh that God has given it to you. God has given this dream to you. And he gave God the glory through all of us, so much so that the Pharaoh did, and so did this same steward. And we can't really get too confused here as to why would the steward say it's the cup by which he divineth if, that's, if he actually understands that the Hebrew God is Joseph's God and one to be feared. But remember, Joseph's the one that told the servant to say exactly what he said. This is Joseph's purpose in Egypt. What this cup represents is the reason for existing in the position that he was in. It was the will of God for him to be in Egypt in this position, doing the things he was called to do. Consider now Mark chapter 10, verse 38 and 39. Jesus saying to those disciples who required of him the right seat, the seat closest to him. And Jesus says unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized the cup that Jesus was to drink of was the will of God. Not just that it was the will of God He drank from the cup, but the cup actually in and of itself represents the will of God. It is the purpose for which Jesus came was to drink of that cup. It was never going to be passed from Him. It was never going to be given away. It was His cup to drink. It was His purpose The Father's purpose for His Son to go to the cross and fulfill His wrath against sin for His elect. That was the cup. Would the church indeed drink of that cup? Yes. That church that He was speaking to would also go on to feel that affliction. Even during the crucifixion itself, many of them would go on to be martyrs. But they would witness for Christ which was the will of the Father, their very purpose, which we'll see a little bit more on Sunday. The sons of Jacob have this cup. Now, this cup that seemingly represents the will of God has been thrust upon them. It has been snuck into the bag of Benjamin. What will they do with it? What will we do with it? The will of God, this this cup that we're using as typology here, is also thrust upon us. This is probably not the year and the times and the, the version of America that we would prefer to have, but it is the one we have. And the will of God is that we be witnesses of Christ Jesus unto the community of Tulsa, Oklahoma. What will we do with this cup? Notice that they were not able to go all the way back to where they had first come from. They weren't allowed to go back as though this cup didn't exist. Joseph sent the servant to retrieve them before they could return to their old life. A little bit more typology, is it not? Remember the faithful servant earlier in Genesis? The one that uh, Abraham had sent back uh, into his homeland to find a, a bride for his son Isaac? And that faithful servant, though he's not named, an entire chapter is dedicated to his pursuit of a bride, Rebekah, for Isaac. And as we talk through that, we see a picture of the Holy Spirit's work on behalf of its commission, his commission from the Father. And we see here Joseph dispatching this servant, this other unknown faithful servant, to go and retrieve the ones for which the will of God had been planted and bring them back before they return home. To bring them accountable for what it is that they are in possession of. Beloved, we will also be accountable for the will of God that has been thrust upon us. It's not as simple as, well, we have a decision to make when these trials come up, when these events happen, or these opportunities occur. It's not as simple as, well, we'll keep going the way we've gone, or we'll do the will of God. No, it's more like this. We'll either do the will of God or we will have deviated from the will of God and now we're in rebellion. we are end up in the wrong direction completely. They won't be the same as they once were. Joseph, the Lord of Egypt, as they called him, sent his servant after them before they could go too far. And the servant was instructed to carefully bring to their minds the love and care that had been shown unto them Listen to the text as we get into it again in a moment. And to bring conviction to them over this thing that they had done. Sound familiar? Listen to the next few verses. Genesis 44, verses 6-13. And the servant, he overtook them, and he spake unto them these same words. And they said unto him, Wherefore saith my Lord these words? God forbid that thy servants should do according to this thing. Behold the money which we found in our sack's mouths we brought again unto thee out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of thy Lord's house silver or gold? With whomsoever of thy servants it be found, both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. And he said, Now also let it be according unto your words. He with whom it is found shall be my servant. And ye shall be blameless. Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground and opened every man his sack. And remember, they're still engaging with the Holy Spirit. They're not excusing themselves. They're attempting to reason with this servant who's a picture for us of the Holy Spirit. Joseph is still back in Egypt. And he, the servant, searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they rent their clothes, and laid at every man his ass, and returned to the city. Notice that in searching for this cup of the Lord of Egypt, uh, the servant started with the eldest, and went to the youngest. Remember how the spiritual blessing or the spiritual responsibility fell in a home for the for the Hebrews started with the oldest, and went to the youngest. We're seeing a picture here, beloved. When the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, the older boys could have considered being rid of Rachel's kids once and for all. Joseph's gone. We finally got Benjamin out of daddy's house. Got the greatest excuse in the world now to just leave him here, just like we did 20 years ago with Joseph. It likely would have meant more despair for Jacob, but Jacob wasn't going to live that long anyway. And he'd been in despair for 20 years. Was that going to change anything? Their resolve and spirits were once again being tested. Were they truly fearful of the Lord? A lot of things happened that day from the, from their perspectives could not be explained. Again, that meal, the blessings of that meal, the experience of that meal, the sequential order in which they were set, the, the added blessings to Benjamin's plate. The, the jubilant reception of Joseph into his home, not just in the cold courtroom, but into his home? What were they to do with any of this? They elected to mourn, but not desert their brother. You remember way back in Genesis 4, verses 6 through 10, and, and you can really segment Genesis off. To memory, real easy, right? Genesis 1, creation of everything. Genesis 2 is zoomed in. Look at the creation of man. Genesis 3, the fall of man. Genesis 4, the birth of more men. Uh, And it didn't go well, right? In Genesis 4, starting in verse 6, the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt... Rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, Why has, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. To be their brother's keeper was to keep watch or to be a watchman over him. They have an opportunity to be rid of Benjamin or to watch over Benjamin, and they handle this very differently than they did with the second youngest which was Joseph. They were not keepers of Joseph 2 decades earlier. But listen to the change that take I mean we can we can see a picture of this John writes about it first John chapter 3 verse 16 and 17. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hath his world, this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his vows of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Let's keep reading in Genesis 44, verses 14, 15, and 16. And Judah, his brethren... Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there. This is our proof that Joseph never left Egypt. And they fell before him on the ground. And Joseph said unto them, "What deed is this that ye have done? What ye not that such a man as I can certainly divine? And this is his proof that he doesn't need the cup. And Judah said, "What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found out the iniquity of thy servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. Going forward, the the writer who is depicting these events, he makes it very clear for us that Judah is speaking for the brethren. And what a marvelous change has occurred to his words. Remember Judah, the one who took advantage of Tamar and then was taken advantage of in return? The one also for which the line of the Lord Jesus, the promised seed will come? Listen to how his words have changed. What shall we say unto my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God hath found the iniquity of thy servants. An opportunity to affix the blame firmly on Benjamin is before him. Yet Judah, without argument from the other brethren, mind you, said it is on them all. Both we and he also with whom the cup is found. Remember, as we talked in in chapter 43, there's subtle signs of some change that has occurred here. And now Judah is speaking from a different perspective entirely. Listen as we continue. uh, Genesis 40, the rest of Genesis 44, verse 17. And he said, God forbid that I should do so. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace unto your father, says Joseph. Then Judah came near unto him and said, O my Lord, you can kind of see a new picture for me. Judah comes forward. He comes nearer to this one, this Lord of Egypt. He says, Let thy servant, I pray thee, speak a word in my Lord's ear. And let not thine anger burn against thy servant, for thou art even as Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have ye a father or a brother? And we said unto my Lord, we have a father, an old man, and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother, and his father loveth him. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Bring him down unto me, that I may set mine eyes upon him. And we said unto my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And thou saidest unto thy servants, Except your youngest brother come down with you, ye shall see my face no more. And it came to pass when we came up unto thy servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go again and buy us a little food. And we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother be with us, then will we go down. For we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And thy, thy servant, my father, said unto us, ye know that my, uh, my wife bare me two sons. Talking about Rachel here. And he's talking about Joseph and Benjamin as the two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. Remember who Judah's talking to. This is the first time Joseph's actually heard how that conversation went. And if ye take this also from me, and mischief befall him, Benjamin, he shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. Now therefore, when I come to thy servant, my father... And the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life. It shall come to pass, when he seeth that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And thy servant shall bring down the gray hairs of thy servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For thy servant became surety for the lad unto my father, saying, If I bring him not unto thee, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. This is what Judah had said to Jacob at the end of the previous chapter. Now therefore I pray thee, let thy servant abide instead of the lad a bondman to my Lord and let the lad go up with his brethren. For how shall I go up to my father and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my father. Wow. Can you imagine being Joseph and hearing all of this laid out? And it's... Impossible to see past what scripture reveals. To know exactly what Joseph thought he was trying to accomplish with all these trials and tests. And we see the pictures in which the Lord who was behind it all, God himself, we see what maybe he was trying to accomplish. But as Joseph is also bearing witness to all of this that had been providentially planned and laid out, what could be running through his mind? We know if we keep reading at the the beginning of the next chapter, we have an idea. Verse 1, then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. And he cried, cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brethren. In verse 2, he wept aloud and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph. Doth my father yet live? We'll deal with the rest of that verse next time. But you can see where Joseph is as we ignore the chapter break. We cannot help but admire Judah's speech here, not only for its humility and confession, but also for the love that it showed toward his father and youngest brother, who were probably the two that Joseph cared the most about. Could you imagine what that must have been like? Judah was willing to be surety to to bear the blame even though it would cost him his life. We have another picture of the Lord Jesus Christ here as he draws near to the Father and reminds the Father though he doesn't forget he has no blemish that the elect are mine. Notice Judah doesn't try to argue Benjamin's innocence. We might think in the flesh, my goodness, how could Benjamin do such a thing? Certainly these brethren would know how perfect Benjamin is. And they know they didn't claim their own sacks for the, the corn or the, or the meal that was given to them. So they know something's going on here. That, but he does not even one time try to plead the innocence of Benjamin. Benjamin. All that's left in Judah's speech is to fall on the mercy of the Lord. Beloved, you will never prove your innocence to God. You have none. You will never convince God that you are innocent, that you are guiltless, that you are free from sin. You have but only to fall upon His mercy. And you have only one advocate who will approach the throne. Do you indeed know the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior? I know in the the discussions of prayer requests for trials and such, there's a lot of other legal positions that go in as advocates for you, but not in this trial. In this trial, there's one. Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? The evidence provided was clear. And it was laid out, the servant said, if I find the cup, you're guilty. And Judah acknowledged, if you find the cup, we're guilty. Everything was understood before they found the cup, and they were pronounced guilty. For Judah, had even brought to light the fact that he could not even argue his own innocence, as he confesses a lifetime worth of things in this speech before Joseph. What a beautiful spiritual lesson we have here. Judah thought that Joseph was actually dead, according to verse 20. Not from the lie that they told their father, but surely after so long a servant in Egypt, he does not yet live. And therefore he is is standing here before the Lord of Egypt as though he too is guilty, guilty of murder. Remember, Judah is the line from which Jesus will come. I don't bring this up as a reflection of his character, remember Tamar. But there's been a change here. We were told Tamar in a very particular order so that we could know Judah. Think about it. We don't have stories of Reuben and everyone else. We have a particular story of Judah to tell us who Judah was. And then we have this event who reveals who he is now. We have a definite change in this man. Judah was willing to give his own life for his brother Benjamin's for the sake of their father. Again, 1 John 3, 16 and 17. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Do we perceive here the love of God? Because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Instead, just to show that the Lord had performed a great work on the men in which he intended to use he hasn't confessed it in the court of an Egyptian Lord. Warren Wearsby wrote the following The lost sinner stands before God's bar of judgment and confesses his guilt, thinking that his confession will mean certain wrath. But Jesus Christ is alive. And because He is alive, He is able to save to the uttermost. Christ does not expect us to be surety for our sins or the sins of another, for He Himself is our surety before God. Hebrews 7, verse 22, By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. Warren Wearsby continues, As long as Christ lives, God will never condemn us, and He will live forever. It was not their confession of guilt, their sacrifices, or their gifts that brought salvation to the brothers. It was the gracious forgiveness, the mercy of Joseph. A forgiveness purchased by his own suffering on their behalf. What a picture of Jesus Christ. Can we say that they chose grace and therefore they claimed salvation? There are those who will make that leap. So let's hit the pause button for a moment. Whose plan brought all this to pass? Don't, uh, don't allow us for one second to become free will Baptist, beloved. Let's remember who put Joseph there to begin with and it wasn't Reuben. These boys thought they killed him by selling him off. Who brought all this to pass? Who'd Joseph give the credit to? God the Father. Elohim, as Jacob referred at the end of the previous chapter, the supreme God of the universe. No, these boys didn't choose this path. These boys, every stretch of Genesis since their birth, chose the path of least resistance, like Daddy did, and like Daddy before him, and likely just like we do. There's a lesson to be learned, God says. He thrusts the cup into the bag of Benjamin. You will now deal with the will of God, he says. And they leave Joseph's house with the will of God in the satchel. And the Holy Spirit in type comes up to them and says, you must deal with the will of God. And they say, we don't have the will of God. And he says, well, if I find the will of God, you have the will of God. And they say, all right, if you find the will of God, we got the will of God. We'll have the answer for that. We'll be careful for that if you find it. And they find the will of God. Do you have the will of God? Is that cup in your satchel this hour? We are accountable for that. We're accountable for every drop of the Savior's blood that was poured out on that cross. If we don't believe that a drop of it was wasted, then it will be accounted for. Beloved, we have a lot of work to do. I pray you continue to... Join me in in pleading for the Lord's blessings in the study. Exodus is coming quickly. Lord willing, we'll go right into it. Uh, But as you saw from the beginning of the next chapter, this is the one that, if you've never read Genesis before, this is the one we're looking forward to. The big reveal. Who is the Egyptian Lord? It's Joseph. Can't wait. Can't wait. Please continue to pray.